Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jan Vermut, and joining me as always are my co-hosts Scott Person and Jonathan Edwards. Today we have a very exciting guest, Joey Leach. Joey is an energetic coach and advisor to CEOs. He has a lot of experience working with startups, high growth tech unit, uh, high growth tech unicorns, and Fortune 100 companies. $20 billion in revenue go through the products he has worked on, quite an impressive number, I must say. He has a background in psychology, more specifically in neuroscience. Uh, for a bit, he also was a primary school teacher and for some time, um, for some time, and has written a book that I really want to recommend about design and psychology. I think that is something that we need to bring together more and more. The book is called Psychology for Designers, a Pocket Guide. So please, please be sure to check that out. Besides that, he's also a great and very entertaining speaker and writer. Today, we'll focus a bit on C-level questions and how Jobs to be Done can help answer them. So stick around if you want to learn why Jobs to be Done is one of the, one of the keys to successful C-level strategy. Joe, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. All right. So let's let's jump right in, 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 in shall we? So in a, in a post, I want to kind of mention that before we go in deeper into these C-level jobs to be done kind of things, on your website, which I really like, mrjoe.uk, so mrjoe.uk, you recently claimed that leaders should not want more clarity. Can you elaborate a little bit on that one? Yeah, I can. Um, I think what's interesting about the world that we're in, we all work in the product world, right? And we are very comfortable with experimentation and the uncertainty of the world we're in. And we're pretty great at communicating that uncertainty to the leaders we work with, you know, agile and scrum and all those approaches are embracing the uncertainty in the world that we work in. But I don't think that message has necessarily got any higher. And so the folks that I work with in the C-suite, and admittedly that message that clarity is overrated is, it's quite a spiky point of view, but it's the reality yeah. of the world that we work in now where there's no certainty really in any in business as a whole. And I don't think there ever has been, but what's always been interesting is that leaders have always looked for that. Mm. They've always thought, well, we'll do one more piece of research. We'll wait one more month longer. We'll get five more employees looking at it. We'll spend 10, you know, there's always a reason to try and get more clarity rather than what I was suggesting, which is in essence what we all know in the product world, which is embracing risk and uncertainty and thriving in challenging places is, is the place to live. But again, for most folks in the C-suite, that's a scary prospect. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that, it, that I mean, I, especially resonates with me is this idea of let's do one more piece of research. I think that is something that a lot of people or folks are in there and just, well, you're uncertain, you're, you're and probably it's not even you don't have the clarity, but it's just you're not willing to take the risk, as it were. And you just slash on another. Let's wait a couple of months. Let's push push the decision back a little bit. But clarity will never come. Clarity never comes. Kind of I mean, clarity. You know, if you're looking at that terminology, really, clarity comes from uncertainty. Really, clarity in direction, rather than clarity of knowing if what you're going to do is right. And you're right. People want certainty, and there's always a reason to. You know, and, and you have warning signs which are like, can we just do some validation research? You know, as soon as you hear things like words like validation, you know you're in a dangerous place because there's no way you, you can't really validate anything until it hits the market. We all know that to be true. And maybe you can get one or two percent more confidence. But the reality is, is smart leaders move on 80 percent. You know, if you've got 80 percent confidence, 80 percent clarity, move. You know, that's a, those are great odds. 
really 80 percent <laughs> is a great set of odds not yeah. you're never going to get to 100 percent, and people want 100 percent because again there's a fear of if you fail failure is a bad thing and again we know and we've we all embraced failure as learnings but again as a leader failure isn't something that's seen as being great you know it's not a yeah. badge of success especially as many of the leaders that we all work with are not from the same generation as us they were schooled in a very different way in terms of business where you had to have all the answers and you had to make to be sure that what you were going to be doing was a success because you were viewed you know in your you were measured on your success and any failure was seen as being a grand failure of you even a small failure so there's a lot around the culture of folks here in the c-suite that's different from the culture that we've all been brought up with in in terms of the product world that we've all seen yeah. we've seen we've seen that yeah is that something you 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 when you engage with 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 those people is that something that you can actually change or influence in a certain certain way or well, yeah of course i mean absolutely and that was part of the reason i do work with those folks is i got quite frustrated for a long time so my background was in originally in user experience in ux and i got frustrated that product managers were not listening to UXs and not really understanding truly what they were saying. So I thought, right, I'm going to go to product managers and sort those, listen to what they've got, what's going on. I'll with cure them. Right. Kind of well, not cure them, but work with them to understand no. what, what makes them yeah. tick. What are their challenges? And, you yeah. know, as soon as you move to that world, you realize it's more than just the customer, it's the business as well. And it's how do you manage a business? How do you manage a yeah. hungry development team? How do you manage complex stakeholders? And you realize as soon as you move into product that, the world is a level of complexity more than it was in design or in UX or in research. And the same is true of taking that step from there. So again, working with product managers, it was great. And product managers can do amazing things and they can, everybody can read Marty Kagan's book about being empowered. But if your leaders in your organization are not allowing you to be empowered, that means you can't make the great, the right decisions and you end up being, you know, told what to build and how to build it. And again, for me, that was really frustrating that leaders are making decisions that I didn't understand. So I was like, yeah. well, how can I better understand, follow my curiosity to start working with leaders to understand why are they making the decisions they're making? What is it about mm. their background, their experience that means they make these decisions? And yeah. I mean, I just agree with them, but I don't understand why they were doing that. Yeah. I like how kind of these, these different ways of where you've been working is led by your not understanding the decision and then you start working with those people which helps you to understand the... it's just curiosity i'm, I'm curiosity. endlessly curious yeah. it's yeah it's something that's been you know my greatest strength i mean it's carried me a long way in my career definitely it's curiosity yeah so i mean i i mean we talked a little bit before and i have seen a couple of talks of course that you that you've given and and, and there I mean, you mentioned a couple of times jobs to be done and that that kind of helps in, in your discussions with, with, with your work that you do at the moment. And of course, I mean, this mm -hmm. is um, music to our ears here at the Product Quest podcast. We're all kind of really, really enthusiastic about the theory. So, so can you a little bit enlighten us? How do you, how do you use that for, for C-level? What does that mean? Yeah, so originally I got into jobs to be done because it was a good nexus of, of the world that I come from. I come from again, user experience, which was putting the customer at the heart of the decision-making process, which is exactly what Jobs To Be Done does. But what I always liked about Jobs To Be Done is it came from a different place. It didn't come from the makers of the world. It came from the business world. It came from Clayton Christensen, yeah. Harvard. You know, it came from lots of places that were more traditionally business in their approach. Yeah. And so what attracted me about Jobs To Be Done was not because, not that it's revolutionary, and it's really not, is that it has, it comes with a strong 
business focus that it's put together in such a way that business folks can understand it yeah and more than often than not you know the clay clay christiansen's work he's the father of jobs to be done has kind of it's been it's been wholeheartedly embraced by lots of folks in the c-suite they've heard of him they've read the books the innovators kind of dilemma yeah <laughs> yeah they're all familiar with that so for me it was a kind of a way of of, of breaking through that product ceiling into the c-suite yeah. to speak in a language that they understood to yeah. help them understand customer thinking product thinking at that level and jobs to be done was just simply a tool to get there because it had a pedigree yeah. and a backing of the harvard business review and harvard as a whole so why not yeah, use that? yeah. And so I feel like that is something that really, I mean, that really helps. You can, I mean, Christensen now, by now is a, is a name that's just established. You know him, this, everybody talks about disruption. So somehow you have kind of heard, heard of him, but then I think really it's also this, this, it, it, it's, it's a language that really bridges the gaps. A designer can understand it. A CEO can understand it. A product guy can understand it. Some from somebody from the business can understand it. So I think it gives you a kind of almost like a framework where everybody, it, yeah. it belongs to nobody and everybody can kind of, kind of a, Yes, we agree. So if you write the job there, everybody agrees in a certain sense. And what's great about it is those jobs are almost, as you quite rightly put, they're sort of domain agnostic. So they're not, they are great for designers yeah. and developers, but they're also great for sales and marketing. If you know what a customer really wants and needs, you can market your product to them in the same language that, that is yeah. backed up by the product that's launched. So at the very least, using jobs, to be honest, could be a unifying force across the business to help everybody understand what they're trying to do. A shared language of what customer needs are which again is fantastic if you can get it right and jobs is really really good at that and it does it in a way without too much of the pretense or the or the drama or the dare i say it theater of some of the other things that we may practice in our product world um, there is less in the terms of and you know it's easy to it's easily accessible there's less acronyms it's not hidden in a jira ticket somewhere there's a lot of accessibility to jobs to be done which i really really like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah i agree I just had a question to connect this back to the previous uh, question on uh, clarity. Uh, are there any situations where, I mean, what does, how does jobs to be done mesh with this idea of clarity for you? How, how does that work? That's a really good question, actually. So apologies to listeners. My daughter's just come home from school, so she's going to be piling into this room any second. So That's a big cool. part of what I do is, always including kids in our world. So she's going to pile in. So do, I do apologize for that. She may, she may not. Um, anyway, <laughs> so let me talk about that. Yeah, I mean, jobs to be done can give that. It can give a shared understanding of what's going on. It can give you an insight that's easily digestible and easily usable. Can it give you clarity? Not really. I mean, it can give you an idea about truly what your customer's job is. So a big what thing I talk about with jobs to be done is there's a there's an adage that we've all come across is people don't people don't want a quarter inch drill they want a quarter inch hole okay this yeah. is a famous um adam i can't remember the name of the economist who, who coined this phrase i call bullshit on that because nobody wants a hole in their wall what really people want to do is is put some, that hole in that wall is to put up a picture or to put some shelves up or to yeah. to do something else so it's not the end of the journey is the hole and really what jobs to be done is it gets to the root of the problem so you know you asked i the best way to think about it is to ask the question why five times that kind of famous approach that's taken from the lean manifesto and 
other elements is you, is keep asking the customer why until you ultimately get to the job that they're doing right so yeah. why do you want to buy a drill bit well i want to drill a hole why do you want to drill a hole well i want to put a picture up why do you want to put a picture up well my my daughter's just been born and i'm putting a picture up in her new room oh that's you know you can start to unlock really truly what the customer's needs are and unlock markets and products and ideas that can transform the business and often what that gives you is not necessarily clarity but a whole new world of possibilities a new universe you can enter and yeah. and so what i love about jobs to be done is how it can shatter the world you're in and and make your small universe much bigger mm. by realizing yeah. you're not just selling drill bits you're selling something else you're selling something more in depth like i know home improvement you know there's, there's there's words that you can really open with jobs to be done that means that the yeah. organization can really thrive which i really love about jobs to be done yeah I remember this, so I had a, it was, I think a couple of months ago where I, I exactly, I mean, we use this quote all the time, like the people don't want to drill, they want the hole in the wall. And, and, and I once put that in front of an audience and I said, I used that quote to explain kind of the idea that's the core of jobs to be done and so on. And then somebody in the audience, they said, well, but people don't want a hole. And they said, yes. I said, yes, exactly. So why do you think they want a drill in the first place? Like, so if you already ask the question, why do what I don't want the hole? If you're already thinking it that way, you got, you kind of, you got the key element of what jobs right. to be done is all yeah. about. And then, and then, and then that's, and then I can work from there. So that's perfect. If, yeah. if, if exactly. the true job to be done in that situation is like, you know, I want to remodel my daughter's nursery. That's a, that's a different thing from buying a drill yeah. bit. And it opens yeah. so many more possibilities in terms of the way, how you talk about your products, how you build your products, how you design your products. It's really opening the universe to the world of possible to a different you know, different possibilities and honestly that's a big tenet of my coaching work is i expand people's universes of possible you know expand people's universe of possibilities yeah to really help them realize what's possible you know what what could this organization do what could this individual do if they really thought about it yeah yeah what would you say is there a difference in i mean we talked about ux we talked about product people or product managers and then in the c level is there a different way of how you kind of need to get the, the idea of jobs going across are they or are they all getting kind of the same way or how, is that a is there a difference there um i mean it's a different language in different places and there's different seemingly different goals and objectives at each place but one of the key tenets really of the work that i do as a coach is, is understanding and, and, and sort of being a bit more provocative about the questions that I asked and, and statements that I give. So one of the big things I talk about was certainly with startup founders and growth founders is um, they often measure their business success in terms of ARR, annual recurring revenue, right? Or monthly recurring revenue. It's a big deal in the growth startup world. And the problem with money is money is a lagging indicator. You know, money is a lagging indicator. Money follows something else, okay? You, you know, approaching the deal of trying to make more money, you know, there's infinite possibilities of doing that. But the yeah. reality is, is money follows success. And so how do you find what, what success means for your organization? How do you know what success looks like for your organization outside of money? You know, saying we're going to make $10 million in RRR this, this month, this year. You know, that becomes really hard when you don't have enough context about how you're going to get there what, what the steps are to do that and so if you start treating money as a lagging indicator of success you start to define success in terms other than money yeah. you can really start to unlock different ways of solving problems different ways of growth all those kinds of things different routes for product 
that are very, very different in terms of the way an organization can operate. So a lot of the work that I do at that level is trying to get people beyond money to different yeah. measures of success. And across a particular business, those measures of success are everything from you know, giving customers what they want to retaining employees, to keeping the board happy, to making sure investors are happy, to all manner of other success criteria that are not yeah. just related to money, but money will follow if you get them all right. Yeah. So it's just about a language change really, and a perspective change is really what I try to, to do in the world that I operate in. I really like that. I mean, it, it, it's, I think, I mean, money is the easy, one of, not the easiest, but, but it's easy to measure. So probably that's why, of course, we measure it. And in the end, it also, I mean, it has its, its, its importance, but I like how you're saying it's a lagging indi indicator. I mean, and for me, I would say it's, I mean, earning money is a reward for doing something else. Absolutely you get right. rewarded by earning money, but, but you do something, you don't, there's, I mean, you can easily push up a balance sheet in tricky ways, or I don't know, you can, but, but that's not what you want. That's not exact. That if you're honest, that is really not the, the number no. that you want to work against in. Absolutely but, right. You know, it's particularly Trumpian. It's very you know, you can, to figure out what are the metrics. Yeah. And you will need to look at what your leading indicators are of success. And you'd be surprised about how many, how many organizations don't know what their leading indicators of success are. And, you know, they start yeah. to look for things like um, customer happiness or NPS scores or all of these sort of really weird esoteric approaches to measure success. <laughs> but the reality is, is if you can't define what your leading indicators are in your business, then you're never going to do well. You're never going to be successful. You're never going to transformatively grow. And what's interesting about some of the larger organizations I go to, and like the really big folks who've been doing this a long time, who have kind of got a bit stagnant and a bit flat is they've fallen into that trap if they don't know what their leading indicators are. They are just looking at the lagging indicators of money, you know, and employee retention or something like that. They're looking at numbers that are not quite right. And so a big part of that is understanding, well, how do we define success in this organization? Um, and then looking for the leading indicators of that success. And what's interesting is when you start to work with larger organizations as well, is you start to look at things like well, how what's what do our customers trust us what's the level of trust our customers have in us if you're a large enterprise SaaS company trust is incredibly important because again if your customers yeah. trust you they're going to keep buying your product they're going to recommend it to their yeah. other colleagues you can see how trust can be a really important one how do you define trust what are the leading indicators of trust and what's interesting as well is you start to see and unlock other elements of corporate success as well like things like employee happiness. Again, you know, a big part of what I work on with a lot of the leaders I work with is, well, you can't be a successful leader if you're not a successful parent or um, spouse. You know, if there's something going on in your life somewhere along the line, it's going to bleed through to somewhere else in your life. And so mm. being a successful leader means much more than just being and running a profitable business. It means so much more. If you're happy and content in your world that will filter down to the rest of the organization or equally be as happy and content as you are because yeah. that will come through in terms of nebulous things like culture that are again really really important because yeah. again culture drives employees and drives so many decisions within the business that are unwritten about how yeah. they should be made so there's there's lots of things you can work on as a leader that can ensure your success that are outside of money that's an interesting i mean oh, sorry do you want to go jonathan well, I just wanted to say that that was also my experience, that I think as a, 
Um, I mean, at, I was at a smaller level, but just with my business, I, th I think a big, a, a big part of my job I came to realize was to make sure I was in a good state of mind. So it, kind of the job went beyond just my day-to-day -to, -day to make the business function, but it was also taking care of my, my mental state. And so I, I resonate with that quite a lot. And actually, I, was, I, I, thought, I don't remember if it's uh, Jeff Bezos who said something to this effect, but I wanted to get your reaction on this. Um, it, it's, I don't have the exact quote, but it's something like uh, work-life balance is actually is, is, is not a good concept because you could actually, you know, some people might want to be at some stage full-time, like they have their whole mind just on their job. At another stage, they might want to focus more on their family or something. And this idea that you need like this pie chart, or sorry, yeah, kind of a pie chart of your activities and, and that it's everything is very well balanced and all this, that they had put this in into question. I wondered what your your take on that might yeah, be. Yeah, absolutely. I think what's interesting is one of the tests that I give the folks I work with, one of the questions I ask them is I'm like, you know, because all of us are working from home in our world, right? And we have done over the last couple of years, CEOs the same way. What is your immediate reaction when you're deep in the middle of a work or something and your child or your spouse comes in and gives you a hug? What's your immediate reaction to that? And there can be two reactions to that, one of which can be, oh, that's really wonderful. That's lovely. Or often, more often than not, that could be like, oh, stop distracting. I'm just trying to get on with this. Can you let me get on with this, please? And that's really telling about somebody's state of mind. If they can't accept a hug from their spouse or child when they're in the middle of a piece of work, that gets them a bit grumpy. Well, why is that? And we've all experienced it. All of us have. Yeah. Everybody listening to this podcast has been in both of those situations where they felt both sides of that. And that's a test of, of, of balance, really, is you want to, we all know what we want to do in that situation, is we all want to be that person who sort of turns around and gives the other person a hug. But it's quite hard in that situation to be that person. Yeah. And so that's part of a piece of work that I do with the people I work with is, is rebalancing that. And, it, you know, there's many ways that that can happen, but that's part of it. And that's an important thing to, you know, to look at yourself through, really. We, and we've all been there. I've been, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, I think there is a, in this, I mean, in this work-life balance expression, there is, there, I think there is, somehow, I, there is something wrong, I think, in that expression. I had mm. a professor where, where I wrote my PhD. She always used to say, well, if, there, if you need a work-life balance, then what's the concept of work that you actually have? It sounds like work has something to do with death, not with life. <laughs> so what the hell something is really off in that kind of way of phrase so so and I, and i feel like the pandemic of course it was i mean dreadful in, and still is in some some sense but it it started changing the concept of work i think it started kind of blurring that to a good effect sometimes not always but it kind of changed change what work actually actually means i hope for, at least for the better yeah i mean definitely it has it's, it's accelerated all of that because again the two have merged and like you say they're always seeing as often competing yeah, elements yeah. of your life and they should never be like that they should be and balance is maybe a right word i don't know but it's 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 they're not competing with each other they shouldn't have to be like that really they should it's empower right. each other and strengthen each other i mean we you know, started there's, there's a lot to be said being work doing work there's nothing wrong with doing work it's not all of us yeah. working to earn earn our money there's a lot of satisfaction in our jobs which 
is really, really important to all of us. And I think that's the big thing that we need to look at is where where does satisfaction comes from? What does satisfaction mean to you in both your home and work life? And define that a bit more, because, again, by getting to the understanding of really what you love about work and what you love about your family and what you don't like about work and what you don't like about. I don't mean this in a bad way about your family, but about your family situation. There are sometimes, yeah. <laughs> is being happy in all elements of your life. It's not a if the balance is out or, or something's wrong, it's not like taking from one and giving to another. It doesn't have to be like that. It's often seen as kind of being, you know, the, the work is at the cost of life and life is at the cost of work. But that's coming from a kind of place of scarcity where we're looking at there's only a finite amount of resources. Again, a big part of what I work on with the people I work with is moving everybody to an abundance mindset where there is enough of everything for everybody. You're not competing against mindset. An abundance mindset and this is really important in business it's a huge unlocker of potential in business so if you look at like a business like apple right apple have an absolute abundance mindset apple don't compete with anybody mm. really they don't they don't put competition at the start of what they do they talk about competition and they do benchmark themselves against competition but they are they come at life with an abundance mindset right they create new categories like the iPad that didn't exist before. That comes from an abundance mindset. Whereas you look at other organizations who have a scarcity mindset, they're like, oh, we've got to capture, we've got to be the leader in the mobile phone market. We've got to be number one. We've got to be number one in the iPad market. They, they look at being a leader in a competition as winning, that, there's, that winning means beating the other guy. And the reality is in an abundance mindset, it doesn't, it's not like that. And true success, from a business point of view and a personal point of view comes from that abundance mindset where you're not competing against somebody else for something else is you're creating your own world and selling products and services and businesses within your own world where you're not competing against somebody else. And it's, it's a big shift and it's a big concept, but once you get that concept, you can see it across all of your life. Hmm. Joe, first that really resonates with me a lot. The, um, so when you're working with, with a C-level person or, um, and you can see they've got a big, what you call scarcity mindset. And as I, is at least as I'm interpreting it, it's almost an unhealthy obsession with beating the competition. And maybe they're concerned about market share. I mean, like to the, you know, 34 or 35 and, you know, we got to beat, we got to beat those guys. So that's, that mentality can be one that can be quite uh ingrained into them they've taken on this competitive nature almost this lizard brain i have to kill the animal i have to kill my competition so that seems like a pretty big challenge so how do you what are your some of your methods to help them to see a different perspective i mean it's a slow journey to get there really and and you're right is you can talk about things you can you can have a hunter mindset or you can have a farmer mindset Hmm. really it's like there's two ways to think. There's lots of ways to you can reframe how you think about things. And the biggest one I notice is, well, what happens when you are number one? What happens when you beat the other guy? How are you going to feel? Right. Yeah. And you might have a party and get drunk. But what's the next day look like? You've done it now. Great. <laughs> what's next? You won. What do you do next? Hmm. You know, once that's happened and what you notice about folks who are in that mindset of trying to be number one all the time, they never get there. They never do. It's like it's the classic example of like every athlete goes into the Olympic Games wanting to win gold, but not every athlete wins gold. Why? You know, everybody has the same goal, which is I want to win the gold medal, but not every athlete does. And what differentiates the folks that win the gold medal from the ones that don't? 
And that's the that's that's the true ability to success. Because everybody has the same goal: is they want mm -hmm. to be that successful organization, that successful business. But the reality is, is you haven't got control over that success. All you've got control over is your actions to get there. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the best athletes, they they the best food, they train more often. It's not like they're going around and they're you know setting traps for their competition. You know, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite like that you know it's the difference between athletics and boxing it's it's a different way of understanding how what control you've got what levers you can pull to get into that position and once you start looking at that goal in a different way it can it can change everything really and again winning getting gold is is a is a lagging indicator of success Simple yeah, as yeah that. I, I, I couldn't agree more and you do the right things to get there if you train enough if you eat the right foods we all know that to be true it's not about beating yeah, yeah, the other yeah. guy. It's about what you can do to get that to get to that position. It's a very different thing. What occurs to me is you mentioned that it's something common among weightlifters uh, is that well I, maybe because maybe because in weightlifting there's clear physical differences that you, you, you have clear limitations, and so you know it's like your only competition is yourself yesterday because uh, it doesn't there's no pride in in uh, being stronger okay. than somebody that's much small, shorter than you. And there's no shame in not being able to be as strong as somebody yeah. with clearly different genetics. And so it, it's so obvious in weightlifting that your only competition is yourself and who you were yesterday. And that, anyway, that's sort of as opposed anyway, that's sort of the metaphor yeah. that comes to mind. And it's not like football, either soccer or American football, where there is a yeah. winner and a loser. It's yeah. a different sort of sport. And business is not like that. Business is more like weightlifting and athletics than it is like any of the others, really. Because again, if you're playing in a league, you reinvent the league, you reinvent the world you're in, and suddenly you haven't got any competition in the same way. You're not fighting somebody else. You're playing a different game to them. And that's the key is playing a different game to everybody else. That's how you win is by owning the game, right? I'm, yeah. you know, I'm five foot six, I'm 160 centimeters. I'm never going to be great at basketball ever, really. But guaranteed, there is a sport out there like darts or snooker where I could be well, Michael that's Jordan. a very UK thing to say. Like, <laughs> I know. I'm trying to think of international sports that are different than me. Kind of get the point. Is there a sport yeah, yeah, where sure. I can yeah. beat somebody who's a, yeah. but I'm never going to beat them at basketball? And that's yeah. the key with a lot of this business stuff is you play to the strengths that you've got as a business. You don't try and play somebody else's game. You play your own game. You define your own game. And then you can, in essence, beat everybody because it's your game. You know, yeah. the Brits have been very good at that for years. We've invented all the great games like cricket and football <laughs> and eventually got beaten at them. But you get the point. You invent the game. Oh, really? Yeah. You're going to be number one at it. If you're playing somebody else's game, you are never going to be number one. Yeah. And I'm working with a big, well, it's a startup, very well funded. They're doing incredible things. And their biggest, com two biggest competitors are going to be, well, three biggest competitors are going to be Apple, Google, and Microsoft, right? How, as a startup, That's a good choice of competition. How do you, how do you beat all those three companies, right? How do you do that? And the essence, the quest, the answer to that question is, is you don't play the game. You don't play Microsoft's game. You don't play Apple's game, and you don't play, yeah. You know, you don't play Google's game. You play your own game. Yeah. And then invite them to play in your playing field afterwards. You change the nature of everything, and it's been eye-opening working for this startup because they're going to do incredible things. Oh, I'm so I want to share two quotes that I, I really I really liked. One is from one of your blog posts. So you have mm. some really nice blog posts and a newsletter. I, I recommend people check it out and subscribe yeah. to the the newsletter. And I think it's quite a recent post. I, I don't have the date exactly. It's called "Winners versus Losers," and you yeah. you quote. Um, uh, a sentence from 
Atomic Habits by James Clear. Every Olympian wants to win a gold medal. Every candidate wants to get the job. And if successful and unsuccessful people share the same goals, then the goal cannot be what differentiates the winners from the losers. And I, I think that is a, a great quote and it, it speaks to what you were um, saying. And I think is also the essence of uh, James Clear's book, which is uh, the differences in yeah. the, the plan of action that you, you make uh, and not in the goal. And I also wanted to share a quote that's, uh, that I really like and I think relates a bit to, to this discussion, uh, it, which is from Sam Harris. And it's, you don't have to be the best at any one thing to be uniquely qualified for something. And I really like that quote. Um, so I just wanted to throw it out there. Love that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. And I, I think that's so important is you, and it's back to what you have control over. We started in this conversation about clarity and control. Is you, what you have control over is your own actions and your own actions of your business. You don't have control over the outcome of that, but you can't yeah. control who wins. You can control what you do and how you do these things. And it's about understanding that that's where clarity comes from is understanding what levers you can pull to be successful, not through like absolutely as James Clear said in his book, everybody shares that same goal. You, you're never going to be, you're never going to share, you're never going to win that. Well, you may do, but it's unlikely that, you know, it's, you've only got control of the actions and the things that you can do to get you there, nothing else. And Atomic Habits is a great book for that. Really great book. For yeah, that. definitely. Yeah. But I feel like, I mean, there is some, some, elements probably that we haven't made explicit but i think here i mean jobs to be done can help a little bit at least i mean okay if we're successful um, i mean in, in when i when i when i work with people is if you it, because that watching the competition is i think is is heavily ingrained i mean i work in switzerland there is basically i mean there's two retailers that i mean okay there's other yeah. ones that don't want to kind of name names and shame people but basically there's two and all they do is fight about like Okay, we gain half a percent here. So exactly the same story that Scott mentioned, and and if you if you can just move the goalpost a little bit and say forget about them, think about what 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 do your customers actually want to achieve, and where are you good at helping them today? Oh, I mean, gosh, and, honestly, and it's the just danger you're gonna, they're going to face in that world. So this is what I see as well. So I work with a lot of big traditional incumbent businesses, right? Hmm. So let's take a home improvement store, right? There are two home improvement stores in the world in my country and they're both competing against each other for for the same for the same thing for like dominance right and they're both playing the same game if they both got physical stores you go out you can buy stuff they compete on things exactly. like opening hours yeah. differences by a few cents or pennies or in pricing the brands are fairly similar and the reality is is that world is ripe for disruption and it's not going to be either of those two that do it somebody will come in yeah. and destroy them from a place they're not expecting Okay. It will be an Amazon of this world that will come in. And the same is true of the grocery trains you're talking about in, in Switzerland is that the competition won't come from each other. And they're obsessed with each other. And what happens when you're in that situation? So when I was working with Marriott, I can tell you this story, is Marriott were obsessed with what Hilton were doing all of the time. right? And a colleague of mine was working at Hilton and Hilton were obsessed with what Marriott was doing at any one time. Then Two yeah, huge, exactly. enormous global <laughs> hotel chains, right? And they were obsessed with each other for such a long time. Look on that website, they've got this button and look, they've rebranded their rewards program with this. And look, they get an extra point for their rewards program. They're each playing each other's game, okay? Mm. Then a small upstart from the Netherlands came in called booking.com and kicked them to death in the hotel booking market. Absolutely took, a, took them apart. Okay. Yeah. 
because they came from a completely different place that they weren't expecting. They were, and Booking.com played a different game to Marriott and to Hilton. They weren't competing with Marriott and Hilton. They weren't even that. They were competing with how people booked hotels traditionally, you know, yeah. where they went with the brand or they went with something else. And the reality is none of us book hotels based on the brand. We book a hotel based on where it is, its location and its price. You know, at Marriott and Hilton, they were obsessed with the fact that love Hilton. That's why they only shop here because of the rewards. No, most people don't. Your keep your big customers do, but most people don't. And so Booking.com came in and took 20% of their business almost overnight without when they and they just did not know what to do about it because competition came from somewhere else. Because they didn't fundamentally understand the jobs to be done yeah. of that customer. They didn't get it. They thought they did, and they were obsessed with the competition that it come from nowhere. And Absolutely. if you look at all disruption. That's where it comes from. It comes from an unexpected place, seemingly to the big folks. To the rest of us, we can see it coming. And, you know, grocery groceries is a big one for disruption and it's coming and it's going to be somebody like Amazon that disrupts it, not yeah. an incremental, you know, battle exactly. of <laughs> over time. It's not a cold war that's going to get them. It's going to be an all out war with somebody that they're not expecting. Yeah. yeah. I think and groceries is like somebody's going to transfer. Oh, they have to. Soon. I mean, it's yeah. We've yeah, done it the same way for so long, and it's, yeah. it's just and putting it's another cool. store in, in 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 the next small town is not yeah. gonna like that's not gonna solve it. Like, <laughs> like okay. Anyway, I, th I think there is another big message in there that I I, I just like to emphasize. I mean, so sometimes in my discussions there is this, and, and and it's kind of hard work to push against this, but there is this idea that there is something like brand loyalty. Now. It may be a little, okay, okay. To be fair, maybe there is to mm. a certain degree, but also there is surprisingly little of that. I mean, customers, I'm very sorry to say, but they will switch. If something better comes along, they yeah. will switch. I mean, why why, why shouldn't they? Uh, and I think everybody acts the same way and, and businesses also think that way. But there is this idea that because we have been in the business for X, Y, 150 years and our brand is known, that customers will come to us. And I think that is is very dangerous thought yeah it's complacency and that's the big thing you see again with these organizations is the level of complacency a good one recent example is um garmin you know the the yeah now now a watch manufacturer so when the new apple watch the new ruggedized ultra isn't it then apple it came out you know and the big deal was oh it's got two days battery life and garmin's immediate response that came out saying oh well, we've got three weeks battery life good luck with that apple and immediately you're thinking, hmm, do customers buy a watch based on battery life? If they did, Garmin, you're in a great place. Great, keep doing what you're doing, Garmin. Yeah. You've won it. But the reality is people don't buy watches based on battery life. Apple have already up upended that, that myth. And so that's what's going to be the end of Garmin is they won't, they won't, they won't see it coming in quite that way. They're, they're playing a different game. Apple are playing a different game to them. Yeah. very different game to them and that's what that's where the danger comes from is is you think you, you get complacent because you think you have it all you know you we saw it at apple done it a lot did it to nokia in a quite spectacular way mm. and there's a great piece called burning platform which was an internal nokia memo which I, i'll put in the, in the notes and it's a really interesting study on what goes wrong when it comes to corporations and complacency really okay. and how you look at that memo and you you realize what nokia it's not that Nokia didn't see Apple coming, as they, they kind of did, but they then started playing Apple's game. 
So as soon as they saw Apple were dominating and Apple had like a 20% share and inoculate, they all will start playing Apple's game. And that's immediately they lost it then because they're playing Apple's game, not their own game. And that yeah. was the end of Nokia was they start they stopped playing their game and they started playing somebody else's game. And you look at this memo as well. It also talks about Android, the rise of Android. And it's like, OK, so we need to play Apple at their game. We need to play Android at their game. And it's like, OK, so you're now starting a war on two fronts <laughs> against two separate yeah. companies. And you think you immediately can see the danger there. And I think that's the problem with large incumbents is they. It's too late. They, they, there's a complacency there. And then when the, when they do start to get nibbled at and bitten at, they start to play the game of that competitor. They start to copy what their competitor does rather than figuring out well, what is the real game that we're playing here. Again, you saw it with, there's a great um, podcast about the rise of Netflix. Um, I now can't remember the name of it, but it goes into real depth about what Blockbuster did. And, you know, we all know the story, Netflix killed Blockbuster, right? That's the story. What's really interesting is actually at one point, Blockbuster had Netflix. They had them in the grasp, and it wasn't about buying them. They had the product that could have killed and destroyed Netflix. And it was, it was they were playing their own game, but they, again, they didn't take that product forward. But what's really interesting about that, it's about figuring out what the game is, not about figuring out who the comp competition are. And Jobs to be done is great at helping you figure that stuff out. Really great at that. Yeah, yeah I absolutely agree. And, and I think it's important that, I mean, if you really want to have an incumbent that, that changes just a little bit. I mean, let's. I mean, these are tankers. Usually, they they, they don't move that yeah. quickly. But if it doesn't start at the top, it it won't happen anywhere. Right. So usually, it's really. I mean, if, if it's not kind of a, driven by the sea level, it's 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 not going to happen by itself. It's just, it's just not. It never does. <laughs> so, no. And, and again, that's why I want to work that level as well. It's like it's being vigilant about innovation and the future of what you're trying to do. Is if you fundamentally understand the jobs to be done you should be looking to disrupt your existing business model to something else, because if you don't, somebody else will. Yeah. And that's quite a frightening place to be initially, but that can also be quite an exciting place to be. You can see the potential of that when you're there is, is to, is to really start thinking about well, how can we disrupt ourselves, which again is back to Clayton Christian's the innovators dilemma. Yeah. It's that same sorts of thinking. It's that same idea that if you don't disrupt yourself, somebody else is going to, and it, already feels quite old fashioned to say that, but that's the reality that's the truth of large businesses. And also that's the truth of smaller startups as well. I mean, I worked with eBay for a while and eBay again, similarly had it all and lost a lot of that to Amazon. Mm. And what was interesting about the time I was at eBay is eBay were extremely strong and they saw the rise of Amazon and they started to play Amazon at their own game. And again, it didn't work out very well for them. Um, I mean, really interesting stuff is that it, it's about innovation comes should be something you try and do to yourself all of the time. And we all, again, inherently know that to be true, but the C-suite, that's quite a, a scary place to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I'm not there, but that's a different story. So I, I want to- You know, at some point, Jan, the thing is with all of us, right? All of us product managers, as we get sure. grayer and older, <laughs> we're, all gonna, we're all gonna start to be there. And the point is now is that we're setting ourselves up with the skills we've got now to do this in the future. Really, if you wanna build your career forward and one of the challenges you have in product is there is a ceiling in terms of a career level in product. And it's like, how do you break through that ceiling if you want to? Where does your career take you in product? And, and a lot of what we're talking about now are, are the things that are going to help you break through that ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. One of my crazy ideas that I've, I've said that uh, C level should do, they should find their super talented product managers and pay them whatever it takes to stay there in perpetuity. 
they're <laughs> once they're experienced and talented and and you know they've got all these skills there's not there's almost nowhere in the company they could be more valuable than right there doing that and so if the reason and they usually enjoy it but it's you know so usually they but because they're so talented they're often t oh let's make him vice president of this or director yeah. of that and then you take this talented person and you sort of put them in a management it's like find those product managers and just pay them whatever it takes keep them there it absolutely make maybe you know get very innovative they get a percent of profits off their new products in other words even give them additional incentives to do what they're already yeah. enjoying and That's good it. at it seems like a crazy idea but because at, at some level you'd have people below you making more than you but this is sort of one of my crazy ideas I no it's not a crazy about. idea if you look at the book called the ceo test which is it is a book for ceos who are starting a new role as the, as the leaders great book it's a series of interviews with leading ceos about how what's made their success and one of the things they talk about within it is to identify the key people in your organization who enact create define change and success within the business and everybody assumes that the ceo that that's going to be the this folks in the c-suite already yeah. maybe a few couple of distinct yeah. vps and what it talks about is there's probably in a company of sort of four or five thousand people there's maybe 50 of those folks right and you've got to go through and identify them and you may not be able to find 10 of them but you yeah. need to find the other 40. and yeah. scott you absolutely could be right product managers could be one of those but it's identifying the key linchpins in your business and empowering them to be great at what they do is what again what marks out a great ceo is they know that this product manager we have in terms of you know in charge of acquisition is pivotal to what we do you know without that person we are going to be in a mess but a lot of the time they don't know that they don't, they can't identify these roles they're too separate and too distant from them and again if you read this book ceo test it talks about how you go and find the top 50 people in the organization and empower them to do more stuff to do more great things because again it's not about trickle down all of the time it's not always about that i feel like that top 50 are probably going to be almost would almost have a reputation for be troublemakers in their role as they're they're yeah. pushing against absolutely just to just to follow up with our example let's say everybody around them is obsessed with their competition and they're resisting that and this is just an example of course and they're saying hey no we need to understand what our customers are trying to accomplish so i feel that's sort of my initial thought is part of those 50 they can sort of be yeah. you would agree yeah, yeah. you knew i mean rebels get results it's a you know yeah. it's oft used yeah. phrases that they do rebels get results in the world that we're in and so definitely you need that you need that kind of that grit in in the pearl you know you need that element in there. not all the time not everybody needs to be like that but you need that in there because again that's where the ideas come from and again the challenge you have in large organizations is often about conformity and conformity is a big pressure on everybody all of the time and the reality is, is as a leader as a ceo you can decide what that means and conformity can be really dangerous for an organization from an innovation point of view but from so many other sociological and cultural reasons too you know from yeah. hiring the wrong sort of talent to the, you know, the strength for diversity the pushing forward for it for, for all of that kind of stuff right. so yeah I, i'm totally with you i think this this idea is called the peter principle right when you you uh you promote people beyond their you, you take good people and put, promote them uh to to a level where they they maybe in an activity or a level that they they don't thrive in yeah I can see that you're right because you do like you say you end up promoting somebody's great at a job into something into management and management maybe is not their strength anymore it's it's a dangerous it can be really dangerous and you know 
and satisfying for everybody. So I think a lot of, of, of what we've been speaking about is, is, is in a sense, has, has more to do with probably with all the psychology and all that aspects than it actually has with, with business questions, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe can you, I mean, how has, has that helped, helped, helped you and how does that help you now in your work, this psychology background? I think there is all, I mean, you always emphasize that there, of course, you're coming from that angle, but, but, but it seems to be kind of one of the key things that we should much more, much more be aware of or bring into business as such. Well, I mean, it depends how you talk about it. So in essence, all business is psychology. So if you look at e economics, economics is basically, if you look at behavioral economics, they're effectively saying that economics is, and psychology are, are very similar and, you know, the two sides of the same coin, really. Mm. And so there is a certain element of that, definitely, is you, if you understand and you design and you build products for humans, you're going to get more results, you're going to get better results. That's a kind of tenant of, I've, that I've always worked towards. So... Mm. Absolutely, psychology is important at that level, but there's lots of levels of psychology you can talk about as well, from yeah. the psychology of the customers, but also understanding and appreciating your own psychology, your own background, the world that you work in. So a big part of what I work on with a lot of the leaders I do is 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 a is a theory within psychology called um, internal family systems or IFS. And what IFS talks about is this concept of that we are all made up of a sum of parts, but we have different elements to our personality, right? Mm. So again, listeners might know this one of an imposter syndrome. We all probably feel and have a certain level of an imposter syndrome in all of oh, us, yeah. right? I've spoken on stage <laughs> at 2,000 people. My imposter syndrome was right there with me on stage saying, Joe, you're not good enough to be talking up here. Right through to this podcast, I was really nervous. So I'm going to have nothing to say. It's going to be quiet. Nobody's going to want to listen to this. My imposter syndrome was here right mm. and we all are made up of these parts that's one of my parts and what's interesting about things like that is you attempt to squash that imposter syndrome oh i'm not gonna listen to that you know you talk about beating your imposter syndrome or squeezing it or defeating it the reality is is my imposter syndrome is part of my success is if i didn't have imposter syndrome i wouldn't put the preparation into what i've talked about today or i wouldn't put the preparation into my talk yeah. my imposter helps me be better at my job and i can use that imposter syndrome to steer me in the right direction mm. I don't want that yeah. imposter to stop me doing things. I just want it to help me. And then, and then my last count, I've got about 25 parts that I've identified like imp, my imposter syndrome that help me understand at any one point, who's driving the bus of Joe at this point? Is it my imposter syndrome telling me I should say no to this? Or is it my, um, you know, all of these things that come from the culture that you're in? Like, is it my Britishness of being over polite? I don't want to tell this person what I should tell them. There's all these parts of us that control our behavior and mm. a certain part might be driving the bus at any one time. And you've got to understand who that part is and are they worth listening to? What have they got to say? And then <laughs> ask them to step out of the bus and let somebody else drive if you want. Just being very conscious of your, the elements in your personality that can help you be great at what you do. And yeah. that's a huge part of, success that I found is unlocking those parts of it. And it's something that I use with the leaders that I work with is helping them identify the parts and the strengths yeah. and weaknesses of each of those parts. Yeah. I like how, how, how you take that stance on not, on not being against the imposter syndrome, because I think it, it's, it, it, it's not going to go away. Like you're never going to, there is a part of you, it's never going to go away and it even has positive sides. So exactly. I just, I really liked it. There is something on your website, I think, which kind of fits here, which, which I also really like where you say, uh, I think it's on the way where, where I can, when you can work with you and, and then you say, I don't filter by company size. I filter by mindset. And I feel like this is something that, that, that really fits, fits here. So can you tell me a little bit like 
but well, you, you, but you do filter like, so who should kind of be reaching out to you? How can they, how can they do that? Yeah. So the people, <laughs> it's an interesting one is when I try and think about this, the people I, I find that I work best with are the folks at, at, who are at school. And maybe this is some of us here who are like their school report would say things like super smart, super great, at what they do, not living up to their full potential. You know, <laughs> something in the system was stopping them from doing it. Like school sucked or they weren't they weren't successful there, but they everybody could identify that potential and see that potential in them. But the, the traditional realms of school or business hadn't helped them come to success with that. And what's changed now in the world that we all work in as business folks is that we, especially in tech, is we've created a world that suits people like that. That generation who've come out with those elements of potential have built businesses around that. And so that's the people I tend to work better with who are who've got that potential and know that there's untapped potential there that they could do more, but don't quite know how to do it. Something's holding them back. Something's in the way that there's unlocked and unmet potential there that they just want to release. That's that's who I work best with. Yeah, yeah, that very well resonates. Okay, where can they where can they find more about you? So you may we mentioned the. Uh, your website so mr mr dot uk. where where are you how can we reach out to you yeah so i'm on linkedin's a good place believe it or not i do like linkedin um i share a lot of this kind of what a lot of my experience on linkedin so i, I share a lot there so find me i'm mr joe leach on linkedin um, but also on Twitter, I'm Mr. Joe as well. If you want my sort of more unedited view of my life, of me, I'm Mr. Joe on Twitter, M-R-J-O-E. I have a newsletter as well where I publish this stuff. So you can get me on my blog, newsletter, LinkedIn, or Twitter, whichever suits you really. I'm I'm in those places. All right, perfect. So, Joey, thank you very much for doing this and taking the, no taking problem. the time. Hey, I've got, I've got a bit of an ask of your listeners, if that's all right. If you don't yeah, mind me sure, asking. Of course. Always. So I, I would like you folks, can you share with me in utter confidence? I want to know, email me. I'm Joe, J-O-E at mrjoe.uk. I want to know what are your frustrations with the C-suite folks that you work with? What do you find frustrating about them? Send me an email. And equally, what do you find great about them? Because I am always on this curious world of understanding what great leaders are like and what challenging leaders are like. So just send me your experiences. I'd love to hear from you about what your experiences are with C-suite folks, what frustrates you, what empowers you, what um, all of those things, but just send me the good and the bad of your CEO, your C-suite experiences, what I would love. Thank you very much. That's a good Please, one, that's a nice way. one. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, you... Uh, the, the email was, can you maybe just repeat J-O-E at Mr. Joe, M-R-J-O-E dot U-K. That's a very good one. I, might I suggest don't use your company email address to send the email. Maybe it's too telling. But <laughs> no. well, it's fine. I don't mind. No, I've got. <laughs> have some, you know, I, have, I have help with my email. Don't worry. It's not. I'm not in no, this. No, 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 it's... <laughs> it's okay. I'll be all right. Hey, hey <laughs> oh. Jan, Before you wrap up, I have to ask about the um, on the wall. There's a sign that says "Move slow and mend things." I have, like I yeah. think I mentioned when we were warming up, I've got the move slow part down. I'm good at moving slow. Yeah. Like, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about move slow and mend things. What's what's behind that? Yeah. yeah so it, this comes from the kind of famous world of 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 Facebook in the sort of early on, they were like move fast and break things. So they were like move fast, break things all the time to the goal of growth and success. And we know that 
with hindsight that that was not a very it was successful in terms of stock prices and building an enormous company but in terms of the society and the effects that that's caused have been hugely detrimental and so moving fast nothing wrong with moving fast and breaking things nothing wrong with breaking things but again it's got to come from a considered place and what i do in my world is i help people do things in a considered way not in a kind of dangerous way mm. yeah that makes sense there so is, it comes from that reaction i really like that there is there is a there's um since we're kind of in a podcast of quotes there is a beautiful quote and i don't exactly have the same the right quote but by by chesterton gilbert keith chesterton where i think he says uh, so he says i never remove a fence if i don't know what it's protecting oh, what it's yeah. keeping inside yeah chesterton's right. law it's okay to remove the fence yeah. when you know what you're doing so maybe that's but 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 first figure out what is it exactly that, that <laughs> that's is. right it's such a good approach that's called chesterton's law or second there's law of consequences all oh, right okay that's even yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. really deep stuff there if you dig into it it's so again it's a that's big thing next, i work on with a lot of my leaders my is that is that thing. yeah it's it's moving it's a considered movement no absolutely yeah. i love that quote yeah. yeah really good stuff well yeah. just okay so one one last chesterton so, quote after throw sure. <laughs> mr joe this was one of our inspirations as we started the podcast which is a thing worth doing is worth doing poorly uh, oh yes which which i take to like yeah, you don't just because you don't have all the expertise everything's not in place whatever you do it poorly and then you sort of figure out it as you go along so that was how I, how i uh part uh, rationalize us getting started in our little podcast journey yeah i love that yeah i, I really like yeah it makes so much sense really yeah love it all right so that concludes today's product quest podcast with joy leach please send any comments or ideas to productquestpodcast at gmail.com and see you next time Very nice. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. It's brilliant.